Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at banyan.com. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Banyan Books Podcast. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. And today we're joined by Michelle Cassandra Johnson. Michelle Cassandra Johnson is an activist, social justice warrior, author, anti-racism consultant and trainer, intuitive healer, and yoga teacher and practitioner. With over 20 years of experience leading dismantling racism work and working with clients as a licensed clinical social worker, she has a deep understanding of how trauma impacts the mind, body, spirit, and heart. She's worked in several nonprofits and served as an elected official on many nonprofit boards of directors. She has led dismantling racism trainings with large corporations, small nonprofits, and community groups. Her first book was titled Skill in Action and was published in 2017. Today, Michelle Cassandra Johnson is with Banyan Books in conversation about her second book titled Finding Refuge heart work for healing collective grief. In Finding Refuge, Michelle beautifully weaves her personal stories of trauma, heartbreak, and grief into the matrix of collective and cultural trauma and grief that lives in all of us. Through each story, she uses poetic symbolism to highlight the intuition, connection to ancestral lineages, and the divine, which comes as a result of dedicated spiritual practice. This practice, Michelle reminds us throughout the book, is a necessity in our work of personal and collective healing and in undoing systems of oppression in our world today. In 2020, Michelle created her own podcast titled Finding Refuge, which explores collective grief and liberation and serves as a reminder about all the ways we can find refuge during unsettling and uncertain times and of the resilience and joy that comes from allowing ourselves to find refuge. If you'd like to learn more about today's guest and her work, you can visit her website, which is michellecjohnson.com. Banyan community, please join me in a very warm welcome for Michelle Cassandra Johnson. Michelle, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Now, before we get into our conversation, everyone, Michelle, uh, we're inviting her to lead us through a centering practice. And, and so I'll pass over to you, Michelle, to do that. Thank you. So I invite 
you all to find a way to be in your body. You can sit for this practice. You can move around if you prefer. You can stand. Find a way to be in your body. And you can close your eyes, soften your gaze, or find a grounding focal point in your space. We'll take a moment to breathe. I invite you to bring your awareness and attention to the breath and began to feel your inhales and exhales. As you bring your awareness and attention to the breath, began to deepen and lengthen your breath in your body. Offer a longer breath in, longer breath out. And as you deepen and lengthen your breath, begin to settle into your space. Begin to notice what is present, what is stirring inside or moving through. I invite you to embrace whatever you notice. To acknowledge and embrace whatever is moving through or stirring inside you at this time. And the next time you exhale, I invite you to bring your awareness to the base of your spine, your root chakra or energy center. I invite you to imagine an actual root is extending out from the base of your spine and moving down, down through the floor, the foundation, the dirt, the soil, the different layers of the earth, traveling all the way down until you land at the center of the earth. Feel the support from the earth, the grounding energy. Allow this earthly energy to travel up through the root, extending out from the base of your spine, traveling all the way up, up through the different layers of the earth the dirt, the foundation, the floor, and into the body through the base of your spine. Breathe and bring your awareness to the back body. Bring your awareness to all those who came before you, the healthy and well known and unknown ancestors. Feel the support of the healthy and well known and unknown ancestors from behind, 
supporting you. Next time you inhale, bring your awareness to the crown of your head, the crown chakra, energy center. Imagine opening up this space like a doorway and a line of energy will extend up this time through the ceiling, the roof, into the sky, through the clouds, all the way up, up into the cosmos, the stars, the sun, the moon, the planets. And feel the support of the energy from above and allow it to fill up this line of energy extending up and out through the crown of the head. And this cosmic energy will travel down, down, all the way down through the clouds, the trees, the ceiling, and into the body. You have earthly energy, cosmic energy, the support from the ancestral realm from behind. And now breathe deeply into your body and feel yourself here as a living ancestor. A living ancestor on this planet at this time. A living ancestor who is making conscious choices to support the collective good. Now bring your awareness to your heart, your heart space, your heart as a doorway, your heart as a passageway, an opening. And bring your awareness to all those who will come after us, future generations the heart and the front body. And remember the choices that we make now will affect the future. Take another breath here, support from the earth, from behind, from above, feeling yourself as a living ancestor and feeling the heart and the future. Future generations, three deep breaths. And continue to breathe as you feel ready. If your eyes are closed, gently blink them open. Take a moment to come back into your space. In this space. Thank you. Thank you so much, Michelle. There's a few entry points we could go. Um, maybe we can start with the importance of cultivating this heart connection in, in the work of, of healing grief. In, in chapter one, you tell the story of caretaking your mother as uh, she was approaching what you thought was her death at that time. Um, and uh, you write, I'll just, I'll share a quote here. Through it all, and with a broken and open heart, I remained connected with my own heart and with my mother's heart. I felt my heart ache. 
I felt the weight of the world and the ways we as a people try to break each other as a result of being disconnected from our hearts and at times are unwilling to see how that disconnection leads to suffering individually and collectively. One of the themes through the book is how dominant culture or this white supremacy kind of culture just perpetuates disconnection from our heart. Can you speak to that? Yeah, thank you, Ross. Um, so the chapter you just read from is a chapter about my mother and she was quite ill. Um, and I did think she was going to transition. She said she was transitioning. Everyone thought that's what was going to happen. She's fine. I spoke to her this morning. She's thriving now, but we were preparing for her, her transition. And um, throughout that time, we, um, well, really, I, my mother and I, we were navigating a healthcare system that, um, in my experience, is not designed to care for many people. And my mother is an elder, she's bigger bodied, she's black, she has a disability. And so she has many points of oppression or marginalization that I think made it even harder for her to be cared for because the system of healthcare here wasn't designed to take care of her. And so part of my heartbreak was of course, witnessing my, my mother um, and also really having to face what it might mean for her to transition. Um, even though I'm quite aware of the temporary nature of life, it was different to be in the hospital room with my mother watching her suffer um, and wanting the suffering to end. Um, I was aware of that and I was also aware of like how many other people were in the hospital <laughs> at that time who may not have had a daughter like me trying to abdicate or ask questions or you know, may not have had someone like me to interrupt the nurse and say she needs her medicine, like she's in pain, she's asked you for her medicine, where is it? I just knew we weren't the only one. And I knew that prior to this experience, but I felt it in this visceral way in that moment of like, oh, there's so many people moving through this experience and how that ties to um, white supremacy or any, any system of dominance or superiority is these systems have been designed to disconnect us from our bodies, our hearts, our spirits, right? Um, and, and our true nature and our connectedness, our interconnectedness really. And so, that translated into watching people make decisions within that system of healthcare, the hospital, the skilled nursing facilities, um, and watching them, um, I think at times unconsciously make decisions that cause more suffering and also watching them not really be cared for, the people who work there. So um, the expectation I had that they would care for my mother was, it's interesting to me because I also witnessed them not be cared for, like they were not, they didn't have what they need. They had too many patients. They didn't have enough resources. And I had compassion for that. And also I really wanted my mom to be taken care of. But I was well aware that systems of dominance are not about care. They are about disconnection. They are about fragmentation and severing our connection with self and others. And that's how they thrive. I mean, that's how they persist. Um, and there's so much, I mean, I'm thinking about the system of capitalism. There's so many systems to make us really forget how connected we are and how everything we do affects everyone else, 
and for all of time, it will. It's why in the meditation, I was like, I'm a living ancestor. So what I do right now, is going to affect what happens in an hour, tomorrow, in 10 years, in 100 years. Like I'm really trying to be present to that and call people into that because I think we need to make some different choices and dismantle these systems that are rooted in disconnection. They originate from spaces of disconnection and violence. Um, and so that's a little bit about the link between um, this sort of individual experience with my mother that of course was a collective experience because so many people suffer because they're not cared for. Thank you, Michelle. Yeah, that's one of the beautiful things I really love about your book is how deeply personal it is. Each chapter is a, a very intimate story from your life and how you so skillfully weave that with these collective issues. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is to do with what what is the power in actually connecting with our ancestral lines like this is something you touch on so often through the book and you you mentioned in the practice um can you just speak to this how do we how do we find power in connecting with our ancestral lineages and for those who might not be familiar with that kind of a practice how can they start to access it yeah this is a great great question um so I wanna say, I understand uh, working with ancestors is quite complicated or it can be. Um, and given history and what has unfolded, sometimes there's fear about connecting with ancestors. And so in the meditation, I said, well, and healthy ancestors, and I said that on purpose. And I will speak to ancestors who may not be well, I'll speak to that point in a, in a moment. Um, I so deeply feel in my body that the ancestors want us to do this work of opening the heart, of responding to heartbreak, of creating new ways of being. I think that's what's being called for. And in my like deepest, and the introduction um, speaks to this in Finding Refuge, in my sort of deepest place of grief, in reflection now, that moment of grief was really about an ancestral assignment to bring for the conversation about grief. I didn't know it at the time and I thought I was going to die because of the grief I was feeling. Um, but now I completely understand it's the ancestors have something to say through you. And so you've been chosen to do this in this way, so do it. Um, but it was a journey and took me a while. I think that everything that has happened in the past, and I just spoke to this in a way, informs how we're showing up right now, how we live our lives. And um, I also know in my own lineage that there's a lot of trauma that my ancestors um, did not have the opportunity to process in the way I have the opportunity to process. Um, I have the benefit of resources and time and space to process in a way they didn't. And so I think one way of honoring them is to really make space to process trauma and grief so I do not create more trauma and grief. Now I'm going to create trauma anyway because I'm in a body on a planet where there's disconnection. But as much as I can, I would like to mitigate harm and, and suffering. Um, and our, our um, lineages are intertwined in a way that like white supremacy and capitalism they don't want us to talk about that and think about it and it's too painful and yes history is painful and it's also playing out now and so I feel like we have a responsibility in so many ways to honor what the ancestors want us to speak to and and bring forth and heal like I feel like ancestral work is healing work um, and for folks who um, may have uh, 
fear about it or not even know where to begin. My understanding is that the well and healthy ancestors want to have a relationship with us. And so it may, um, for folks who want to begin a practice with ancestors, you may begin by um, inviting the healthy and well ancestors into a relationship with you. Now you can do this by, I have an ancestor altar that's a shelf that's hanging on the wall behind me and has pictures of um, beings who've transitioned, um, family members, beloved transitioned. And then I have certain things on the altar that are connected to them and I make offerings to them as well. Often um, in meditation, in particular, my grandmother will ask for something like rose tea or my papa, Fred, my grandfather used to drink whiskey. And so every once in a while, I'll put a little shot glass of whiskey on the altar. So I make offerings, like we're communing. Like you and I are talking right now. This is what I do with my ancestors. And it may feel strange for people if they're not, if it's a new practice. And I feel like we're in communion with everything all the time anyway. So we're just bringing consciousness to it um, and inviting the well ancestors to be in relationship with us. So that could be through an altar. It could be through, sometimes people connect more deeply in the natural world to ancestors, could be doing that. The, the natural world is a living ancestor too. That's a way to connect. Some people write letters to their ancestors Some people pray to their ancestors. Some people ask for messages or signs. I do that and I receive them. And um, what I have found is over time and as my practice has deepened with my ancestors, they're, um, they want to be available. Like my grandmother Dorothy is around me all the time. I can feel her um, uh, most of the time. And sometimes she sends very direct messages to me. And so, uh, and, in, and she, there's a chapter about her when she transitioned, I felt her right away, right? It's like, and it was different than other ancestors. I was like, oh, the expansiveness of her soul and spirit, it's all around me. And other people describe this when they, at times when they've, lost someone, someone has transitioned or, or a being has transitioned. So that's about well, uh, healthy and well ancestors. And what I would say about the ancestors that may not be healthy is that um, they need healing too. And we have to decide if we want to do that work. My father was not healthy while he was alive for many reasons. And when he transitioned, he was not either. And so he wasn't an ancestor that um, I worked with directly in the last six months, um, something has shifted. And so I've begun to invite in that relationship more because something's different about him now that I can feel. Um, and I do think if I work on my trauma that he has passed down to me, that that is a way of offering healing to him too. So I do think when we, when we prioritize our own healing work, there's a way we're healing back, healing our line and healing into the future as well. You mentioned your, your grandmother, whose name was Dorothy, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's, it was, I mean, what an amazing and moving story of you, you showed up the day before Thanksgiving to, for your father's memorial service. And then after that, on the same day, you're at a restaurant with your grandmother and she has a stroke and she transitions or passes away that same day. You said to that, you were in the ambulance with her and you said, I wrote this quote down. You said to the ambulance, the paramedics, she's a person, her name is Dorothy and she is my grandmother. And then you said, my desire was to have the medical professionals humanize her as she transitioned.
We deserve to be humanized, especially as we are dying. Can you speak to this, this experience and also this, I mean, we've touched on the medical system a little bit already, but it seems very on point. I, I've experienced it myself, how dehumanizing the medical system is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, that experience was like so um, poignant and I know I was supposed to be there because I wasn't supposed to be in town and didn't plan my father's memorial. My aunts did that and show up, but I know my grandmother called me back. That's what happened. Um, Even though she didn't speak this to me, I was there. And when she had the stroke in front of me, my mother and aunt had gone to the restroom. So she, they weren't at the table. And there's this moment where I realized something's very wrong. She couldn't speak. And I know I was when my mother couldn't get in the ambulance, she has a disability. And so I was like, I will go with her, right? And it was like, that was part of the ancestral assignment too, to be with my grandmother and to call for, and it's not just the medical system. It really could be so many systems um, to call for the medical system and other systems to humanize her. They were sort of moving around, not really looking at her, asking me a thousand questions about her. And I didn't know what she had eaten that day or what she did that day. She didn't go to the memorial. She wasn't feeling well, which makes sense. Um, but I didn't know why. And, and that's why at one point I was like, she's my grandmother. Like, this is who she's a person. You're talking to a person, not a machine, right? Neither of us are machines and give you data about this. She can't speak to you and she's dying. So why don't we actually be with her in that? transition like what does it mean to just be with her I know they were trying to attend to her I'm not judging that in any way but it was the way they weren't attending to her as a human it was more her as a body um and I just watched it witnessed it and just spoke to it like let's take a moment to stop um and my grandmother as she was transitioning she kept um she couldn't speak and she kept sitting up and, I, and she was like fighting death. I knew it. I could feel it. And I just held her hand and said, you can go. Like you can, you, you've like lived such a beautiful, full life. You can go. Um, and I um, didn't know, of course, I was going to be in that moment prior to, to being in that moment. And um, it taught me something about my capacity to be with death and to be with transition and practice, like spiritual practice prepared me for that moment, I'm quite sure. And the ancestors prepared me to be with her in that way and say, you can go. We don't, you know, we don't have to hold on. Like you don't have to fight. Your body doesn't have to fight this. Your spirit doesn't have to fight this. And my grandmother was so um, devoted to God. And so I, like she believes she was going to heaven. That's, that's where I believe she is. And so I really think the like surrender to this because this is your transition is what I was offering her at that time. And, and it was such, it changed me forever. I mean, that experience of being with her and no one out, no other family members were there yet. So it really was us in this moment of like, all right, this is the transition. This is why I'm here. Um, And she also, even though she couldn't speak, I was living, I'm in North Carolina now, I was living in Portland, Oregon at the time, and I heard very clearly that I should come back home, back to the South, back here, Um, and I'm so glad I did because my mother got sick, like, the next year, and had I been across the country, it would have been quite challenging to try to be present to my mom, so my grandmother knew something in that as well. And as I said, when she transitioned, I felt her 
all around me, everywhere. And she is um, the most present ancestor um, for sure. Um, and it's wonderful to have a relationship with her in this, in this way, even though she's in a different realm. Thank you. I want to I want to circle back to this term white supremacy because I think for a lot of people in our audience that might need some clarification and then I have a follow up question around around how that works within us. You know, I I think for a lot of people the term white supremacy might bring up images of, you know, skinheads and neo-Nazis and that kind of thing, but the way you're using it here is much more kind of the internalized sort of system and dominant culture that we're part of. Can you sort of clarify that for us? Yes, so um, in the beginning of Finding Refuge, there is um, a section on shared language. So um, one of the definitions in terms of white supremacy that's offered there. And I understand that, one, I say white supremacy all the time because I'm a dismantling racism educator. I speak it all the time. It's not emotionally charged for me when I speak it. It happening all around us is, is emotionally charged for me, but not when I say the words. And I recognize that it may feel, um, there, people may feel a charge when they hear it. So I know that. Um, and I say it very directly because it is what is happening. And it when I speak to it, it is about what you named um, sort of the internalization of it, the internalization of culture, dominant culture and superiority. And it is really the ideology or belief system that white, which was constructed and made up is superior. And that being black, indigenous, a person of color is inferior. Um, and so yes, it includes um, skinheads or the KKK is often what people think of. But the way that I talk about it and other people who do this kind of work talk about it or think about it is that it is a system that we are all part of in some way and implicated in in some way and have been conditioned and shaped and socialized by. And so when people have a charge or a resistance to that term and want me to use some other term, what I invite them to do is be curious about their resistance and also um, to sort of look at how is this happening around us, right? Like where do we notice um, this ideology of, about white being superior show up? How does it show up in systems? How does it show up inside us? How does it show up in, within families, within faith communities? Where do we hear it and see it and feel it? Because I believe when we see it, feel it, name it, um, know it, we're conscious of it, then we can do something about it and disrupt it. But if we're, if we're afraid and we're saying, well, I'm not part of that, um, then we won't disrupt it. It's just going to persist as it has. And it is in relationship with systems like sexism, transphobia, classism, xenophobia. Like it is in relationship with all of those systems of dominance and superiority too. They work together. So that's what I mean when I say white supremacy. Thank you. Yeah, to me, it, it seems like it's, it's just so interconnected with sort of the colonial industrial paradigm which is it's kind of one and the same really isn't it everything's based on productivity and power over and uh, and dominance is that so yes and i mean yes like they're completely interconnected and rely on one another um and I don't know what the conversation about critical race theory is there, but there's a huge conversation in the U.S. about critical race theory right now, and um, 
it's quite interesting because it, you would think that white supremacy is like a new term and critical race theory is new and it's not. Neither of these things are new. They're very old and are traced back to colonialism and, and colonization and attempted genocide. And like, it's just interesting. So in the way that you said, yes, capitalism, and we can think about this with certain instances in history, like owning people and profiting from bodies and people and exploiting bodies and people for the benefit of white supremacy, right? Or people who were, who were um, landowners, right? Or so yes, it's completely connected. The, the other kind of follow-up to that is, is you mentioned that a lot of sort of social movements or not-for-profit organizations, they, they start out and their whole goal is to sort of to um, interrupt these kinds of white supremacist or colonial or industrial paradigms. And yet they can often end up falling into working within that same way internally and you sort of make the distinction, which I 100% agree with, that the thing that might be missing in those groups is a really dedicated and sincere spiritual practice or practice of healing and grieving and self-care. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yes. Um, so there's a chapter, chapter three um, in Finding Refuge that is about a time when I worked in a... Um, organization, and I've worked for many organizations with many organizations, um, nonprofits and for-profits, but mainly nonprofits. Um, and what I've noticed in, in almost all of them, although it was more present for me uh, when I was working for this organization that I referenced in, in chapter three of Finding Refuge, what I've noticed in each one of these organizations is um, they might originate or emerge um, from injustice and, and wanting they want to respond to injustice that's going on. So there could be a mission about responding to racism or disrupting racism, or um, I worked for a long time for an organization that worked with survivors of sexual violence, primary and secondary survivors, right? That's in response to injustice um, and the system of heterosexism and patriarchy, for example. Um, and so there are these organizations that come from a space of righteous anger and dismay and grief that emerge and are created and often under-resourced and then um, invite people in to work or volunteer and often replicate the patterns of dominance and superiority and, and um, power and imbalance of power that they're trying to disrupt, that they're trying to fight. And so this organization I worked for we had a we were training people about um, dismantling racism within their organizations. It wasn't they weren't just trainings. It was transformative process. We we're inviting people into culture culture shift and transformation. And what was prioritized there was workaholism, um, was perfectionism, um, was a lack of self care, and it was a mostly people of color. Um, it was people of color led organization, but mostly people of color worked there. So the people most deeply impacted by the issues we were responding to were also in an environment where we were being asked to overwork and meet unreasonable expectations and demands. And one of the reasons it was so um, pronounced there was because, uh, for me, was because my father transitioned, I moved to this space to work in this job and 11 days after I moved, my father transitioned. So I was in the middle of not knowing where I was really. Um, I did have community, but I had just gotten there, losing my father, 
which was complicated, still is complicated, and working in an organization that I thought would um, prioritize care and that didn't. And, and I just felt like, what are we doing? Um, I don't wanna stand in front of people and teach them and talk about care and antidotes to things like white supremacy and collective care when we're not actually practicing it. And I wanna say it's not unique to that space. Again, I've seen this in so many places and I think if we actually wanna respond to injustice, we have to prioritize collective care. And we, and we have to do that through the way that we work and show up for one another, um, or we're just going to uphold the things we say we want to disrupt and dismantle. Um, and this is, I see this in so many places and I see it really connected to grief because I was in the middle of a grief process and there wasn't a statement that I needed to come back to work like within a certain amount of time, but in many institutions, we have a few days to grieve and then we get back to work and we produce um, and that's not how grief works and it's not what it needs. And so what does it mean to actually create spaces of care that prioritize space for people to grieve and, um, and not just grief for people they've lost, but like the world, everything's falling apart and people have a lot of brokenheartedness around that. What does it mean to speak to that, to make space for that? And I understand the, the need for things to happen but again, we'll just replicate our trauma if we don't heal it. And so we need to institutionalize practices that allow us to heal it. One of the things that uh, really stood out to me is when you're describing your personal experiences in finding refuge, you, you give this kind of very clear, um, deliberate description of how grief was impacting your state of mind your perception, your ability to function in your life. For, for example, what one of the ones that comes to mind is after, uh, I can't remember when it was, but you're at the Ikea, yes. you're in Ikea to buy a table. After It was after your father transitioned, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And you, you were fumbling with the carts and you noticed people looking at you like you weren't in your right mind. I'm wondering if you can speak to how grief actually impacts our nervous system, our functioning, our brain, how we relate to ourselves in the world, and how we can treat ourselves and others with more, more compassion as we go about life looking for these signs. Yeah, um, I will never forget that IKEA, and I um, <laughs> was messing with the carts. I think I was trying to get the cart from the exit instead of the entrance, and they were like on lockdown, and it was a day after my father transitioned. And, if, and I was like, I'm going to Ikea, which um, people do all sorts of things when they're in the middle of their grief process. And people, they were looking at me because I was angry. And so I was also like fighting with this cart, which was an expression of grief. Like it was anger and what is going on? And I just got here, I'll, I'll never forget it. Um, and I just named that because you mentioned compassion. And, and um, of course people didn't know what was going on for me. And I really wanted to be like, my father just died. And to like, just yell that out. I had that experience in the grocery store. I wanted to be like, my father just transitioned. That's what's wrong with me right now. I kept having that urge. Um, and I have those urges a lot to be like something, the world is falling apart, people. Can we talk about it? Can we actually just stop like getting whatever we're getting at the grocery store off the shelf and be in conversation about what's really happening? And trauma, you know, there's individual trauma, which, um, many people might know and have experienced which disrupts the nervous system. And trauma can be a one-time incident. It can be an ongoing um, 
sort of exposure and experience of trauma and there are many different types of trauma. And there's also cultural trauma and collective trauma, which I would say over the last two years, we've been through an experience of cultural trauma related to COVID and many other things, but COVID is something I've, I've never experienced, a global health pandemic, for example. There was a disruption to the nervous system and disruption to our routine. Um, an amplification of our awareness of uncertainty, of not being able to plan, of thinking things are okay and I can go out. Nope, I can't go out now, right? Of just dissonance around um, what we mean when we say collective care and how we're going to practice it. So this is a, an example that's fresh that we're still in the middle of, of, of cultural trauma. And I would say something like COVID, um, and this is how I speak about it in, in Finding Refuge, something like COVID um, changed the way we think, the, it changed who we are, it changed how we operate. Being isolated, right, does things to the brain. It does something to the brain. It does something to the nervous system. I'm not being able to connect in the same way. And I don't think we'll understand the effects of that. I think it's going to take a long time to really understand what has happened to our brains and our consciousness and identities because we've been isolated for how many of our years dealing with everything I named. So, you know, trauma and grief really um, can throw us off balance. And that may resonate for people because of what we've been through over the last couple of years, like how much people felt out of balance. And what can manifest from that is we can have physical responses to that. Um, sometimes grief shows up for me physically first. So I'm sick. I just spoke to someone else today who talked about that as a child when she was grieving, she didn't name it as grief, but she went to get the flu, but it was actually grief in her body and she didn't understand it until very recently that that's what was going on. Grief and trauma can cause, an, I mean, there are emotions that go along with it, sadness, anger, confusion, depression, anxiety, all sorts of things. Grief and trauma can affect the spirit, however people think of, of spirit. Um, and grief and trauma, sometimes I think of spirit as our connection to something bigger and an awareness we are spirit. That can feel, uh, that awareness can um, feel dampened when we're grieving, like we're trying to make meaning of things because something's happened that we don't understand and that can disconnect people from spirit. Um, and of course, grief and trauma can affect, and there's a connection to the nervous system here, affect the mind and how we process our ability to concentrate and focus. Um, our ability to like perspective will shift when when there's a loss and we grieve like what what matters to people changes when we are in the middle of a loss or grieving um, and so that's some of I often think of the system as physical emotional mental and spiritual and the heart of course and trauma and grief affect all of those things and so I would say and spiritual practice, yoga is my main lineage and invites us into developing more compassion for self and others. So when someone has gone through, is going through a process of, of um, grieving a, a loss, be that a person, a dream, a relationship, a move, a transition, we can understand that um, the trauma and grief has disrupted their nervous system. We can understand grief isn't linear. We can understand that we don't need to fix what's going on. We actually just need to build our capacity to be with them, to like show up, um, to say we're sorry about what's going on without nervously saying, well, you know, when I lost so-and-so, which is what people will do in their discomfort because they don't know what to do. And I think compassion is like grace. It's like, let's just extend compassion and grace and be with. 
and, and see what unfolds from that place, because often that's what people want. And they also want that over time. I wrote about this in Finding Refuge, like people show up to the funeral and then they're gone. Um, and, you know, it's the year anniversary or six months after on a random Wednesday when somebody needs a phone call, right? It's like the ongoing um, work and practice of showing up for people um, and, sh and, and saying, I don't know what to say right now, but I'm, I want to be with you. Or I want to bring a meal where if you ever want to talk, I'm here. I'm going to reach out and you don't have to respond. That's how I practice compassion in response to people grieving and try to do that towards myself too. Like this is ongoing, Michelle, right? You're in the middle of this. Compassion as an action oriented process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, we've got some nice questions coming in from, from our live audience, Michelle, if, if you're up to getting to some of those, I can read, read the first one to you. Sure. Okay. So this one's from Donna. It's a little bit of a longer one. So just mind that as I'm reading it out. Uh, Donna says, as an indigenous person, I related to the language you're using, calling to the ancestors, ways of being, ways of knowing, making offerings, etc. I have a colleague who is also indigenous and was part of the 60s scoop of removing indigenous children from their homes and adopting them, adopting them out to non-indigenous families. She was raised by parents. She felt loved and in close relationship to indigenous ways and beings and being. She recently lost her parent. What are your thoughts on having her calling on her genetic ancestors, but also her adopted familial ones that she was so connected to? What advice or guidance do you have in this space? Thank you for your question, Donna. Um... I think this is so complex and layered. Um, and I would say that the person who you, you reference in your question, um, I would want them to know they have the agency around how they respond and their choice to um, connect with both their genetic um, blood um, relatives, ancestors, and uh, the um, parents who who raised them who were not uh, related by blood. And I would also say, and I spoke about this earlier, that um, working, it is a lot to take on, and I'm not, I don't know the relationship between the, the folks you're naming, so I'm not assuming people are unwell. I will say it is a lot to take on ancestral work, and it is a lot to take on the work of our ancestors who um, were unwell, may still be unwell. And I don't mean that in a judgmental way. I more mean um, we have a lot to deal with uh, as we are like moving through our lives now. And so there's enough for us to heal. And I, I wouldn't want this person to take on so much all at once as they're grieving and maybe feeling a lot of complicated um, emotions in response to this, as particularly because of what you named about um, folks being taken, Indigenous folks being taken away from their homes and adopted by folks who are not Indigenous. Um, and we know there's a whole history of Indigenous children being taken away and also taken to residential schools and um, being told they were inferior and all of these things. So I just think there's, there's a lot there and I would want the person to know that 
um, they can make a choice at any point. They can change their mind about opening up a relationship with ancestors, blood relatives or not. Um, that is what I would say. And I, I would also, I think, um, I don't know if, if this person has, is able to be in relationship with other people who had a similar experience. But I wonder if that would feel helpful because I didn't have this experience. And so the way I'm speaking to the complexity is not from an embodied place. It's not from my lived experience. I wasn't taken away from my home, right? I can speak to it from like what I know, but it's not from a lived experience. And I do wonder if connection with folks who had a similar experience might be helpful um, to talk about just the complex nature. I mean, grief and family is complex enough <laughs> for many of us. And I think this is even more complex. So I would offer that too, if there's a way to connect with others who share the similar experience. And was there another part to that question Ross? Um, no, I think you, you, you covered it there. Yeah, you okay. covered that. Yeah. Thank you, Michelle. And thanks, Donna, for your question. Um, there's, there's a lot about ancestors here. There's, there's two more questions about ancestors. And I, it's a, it seems to be a theme today. So uh, this one is from Hubbard, who says, Michelle mentioned healing our own trauma, so we could heal our ancestors who weren't well. How might that type of healing practice begin? Yeah, I think this is from my friend Tan Hubbard. Yeah. Um, so hi, Tan, if that's you. And um, if it is Tan, we've talked a little bit about this. It's, it's complicated, like I just said. And if these are ancestors who are, well, I was going to say living, but I'll say living or transitioned. Um, one thing that I would invite you to do is to um, ask to be well yourself in the sense of ask for the support that you need to be well and not to um, replicate whatever trauma um, or pass on whatever trauma um, your ancestors may have passed on to you. Yeah, it is tan. So I would say that first. Um, that there are guides and energies and probably well us ancestors somewhere in your line who want to support and, and invite them to support you in being well. Um, and so that's a practice, right? That's a prayer, actually. You could, you could uplift that. Um, and I also think you could pray and ask for um, the ancestors who are not well to receive what they need to heal um, and I also think you can set boundaries about how much you want to hold. Um, what I'm really saying is uh, clarity about what is our work to do and what is not feels important. And I'm not saying I'm always clear. And I am saying we can ask to be like clear about what's mine and what can I take on and what can my practice help me with and what is not mine. And can I pray that what is not mine um, be taken care of as well? If that makes sense. So those are two, there happen to be both prayers. I wasn't thinking that, but they're prayers like, and wishes, right? I would offer those as a healing practice um, for your own wellness and for your, and clarity around what's yours and what's not. And Tan, because I know you, I'm also going to say, um, I know you have little ones. And so I would say that the work that you are doing now, because I'm in space with you a lot, always seems to be in the spirit of 
um, healing yourself and um, supporting your little beings and being whole and not passing on trauma. And so I just wanna affirm that and say that to you as well. Like you're always in the practice of this from what I've witnessed. Um, so you're, you're like on the path, you're doing it already. And so I invite you to trust that. Thanks, Michelle. There, I think you've partially answered this with, with what you just said to Tan. And this one's from Carl, who says, when I think about the idea of creating a relationship with my family ancestors, I admit it does bring some fear. How do I ensure or know for sure I'm not inviting presences in that are harmful? It's a great question, Carl. Um, so one chapter in the book is about intuition and it doesn't speak directly to what you just said, but I'm raising it because um, it just, just happened the other day. I could feel that an energy was with me that was not benevolent. Um, I was sitting on my couch. I had been somewhere earlier in the day and I could feel that I brought something with me. I don't always feel that, but I felt it then. And so I moved through a practice to clear that because I was like, I don't, this doesn't, something feels off. This doesn't feel like mine. This doesn't feel like me. Something's with me that I don't want to carry. Um, and that has come from that awareness of feeling that kind of energy um, has come from deepening a, a practice and deepening a connection with my intuition, our inner wisdom, our inner knowing. Um, and I actually think many of us, even if we can't interrupt it, we can feel when something is out of alignment, when something is not benevolent, even if we don't have words for it. So I understand the like, it's, it's kind of scary to open up to ancestors. How will I know if somebody comes in that actually may not be benevolent? You can consciously ask for benevolent beings to show up. You can do that. You can also ask for protection from energies that may want to come in that are not benevolent. And you can ask for them to leave the space you're in. This is a practice in many circles, opening and closing circles, inviting in benevolent beings. And at the end of closing the circle, if there are energies um, that um, are not benevolent, asking them to leave the space right? Or asking for a protected space. So I think you can do that as some like housekeeping as you open up a connection with your ancestors if you choose to do that. Um, and in my experience, what I will say is more often than not, healthy and well ancestors show up versus um, beings that may not be benevolent or well. That's been my experience in this opening of my just world to my ancestors and to clear my energy and sort of realm when I, do, when I feel like something's there that is not um, um, benevolent. And I will also lastly say that sometimes, sometimes I'm conscious that there's a being there that doesn't, an energy that doesn't need to be there. And sometimes it's just a feeling, like it's like a drain, right? I'm tired all of a sudden. When my, my father, who I mentioned was not a well ancestors when he was alive and, had to do some work to on his wellness after he transitioned. When he was transitioning, which I did not know until after, I was sitting on the couch and couldn't move. I couldn't get up. I missed an appointment. I was so exhausted and I couldn't move. And he was in the middle of his transition. And later I got a phone call that he transitioned. And so I felt his energy. Um, I couldn't actually do anything about it in the 
at the time because I physically could not get up. And I was like, what's wrong with me? I'm so tired, something's going on. So when we notice this and practice can help us with this, right? That intuition, that awareness, that consciousness, right? When we notice that sort of drain, or as I said, something feels off, we can, when we can, we can ask to clear that um, energy. So, and there are different ways to do that. Water, um, people have different, they're actually specific um, smudges um, like cedar and pine are helpful for moving through grief. Um, there are different oils that can be helpful for that and, and clearing energy. So um, those are a few things that I want to name. Thank you, Michelle. And, and thanks for that question, Carl. We have one more audience question here from Tara, who says, what are your thoughts on dealing with one's own grief while also trying to be compassionate toward the grief of others? siblings in a family, for example, or community members, if it is a wider cultural grieving, who may have a completely different narrative and experience around their process? This is a great question. So we all grieve in different ways. And remembering that has been really helpful for me. Um, and um, what I have noticed, at least in individual when I've had an experience of an individual law, losing a family member, for example, like my father, the narrative that was expressed at his memorial was quite different than my experience with him. And I sat there thinking people are not telling the truth about who he was. And then I thought people are telling a truth about who they wanted him to be. And that does not match what my experience was. And I get to actually make space for my experience and see what's happening outside of me. And you, I think you can scale that to community and the collective that people will have all sorts of narratives about um, who people were. And often it's a reflection of who they wanted that person to be. And there's grief in that too. There's pain in that, there's suffering in that. I don't, I'm not gonna suggest that you need to take care of that. I'm really speaking about awareness um, and the ability to see outside of ourselves to see what might be going on in this moment when we can and to tend our hearts when we need to, and when we can't actually see, make space for like compassion for others. Like I'm human, I'm not always compassionate, right? And so I'm not saying that's what we need. We can strive towards that, but I'm not saying that's what we will always be as compassionate. Sometimes we need to be like, the person is actually not telling the truth about what happened. And here's my truth about what happened. And I'm gonna honor that. And this is what I need because I understand this is my truth about it. Um, so I think it's, your question really makes me think about the importance of making space for our grief and honoring our own process of grief as we witness other people's process around grief and then setting boundaries where we need to set boundaries um, and caring for ourselves because grief is, I mean, being a human is like enough. There's so much to respond to and making space for our grief and consciously grieving is, is a lot. It's a, it's a massive undertaking. So that's what I would say in response to your question. Thanks so much, Michelle. And thanks everybody for your, for your questions. It's so great to have our live audience here helping to, to bolster our, our live events. Of course, we've been talking to Michelle Cassandra Johnson about her book titled Finding Refuge, Heart Work for Healing Collective Grief. And I just want to take a moment to also thank uh, Jacob Steele, our podcast producer and events curator, and everybody that works at Banyan Books um, to make it what it is. 
a question I have for you, Michelle, uh, before we close is just about this term social location. Uh, if you can help us understand what that means, but also how we can use that to identify our different identities and, and, and find our roles and responsibilities in contributing towards the healing of, of grief and trauma and, and shifting things on our planet. Yeah, so social location is, um, it's in the shared language section of Finding Refuge, and then it's in a chapter, the chapter about my grandmother, um, which is called Ushering Us, because she was a church usher, and I think that's what she's doing as the ancestor, ushering us into a different uh, way of being, iteration, and social location is our social group membership, so our identities, for example, I'm Black, I'm cisgender, I'm female, I'm heterosexual, I am a citizen of the United States, I have a master's degree, etc. And I named several identities and some of those experience marginalization, like being black, um, like being a female, except I'm cisgender, which that gives me more power. Um, identities like being heterosexual, being a citizen, uh, being middle-class, that puts me closer to power. And so social location is actually about systems of power and where they've placed us. Now, the identities I named, I don't, they are so um, important to me. They are part of me and they're not the whole of who I am. So I wanna say that social location is a tool to understand what's going on around about power and then what our responsibility is based on where we're located. So given that I am, I have many points of privilege, I have a responsibility to both be in relationship with people that are less proximate to power and to ask what is needed and to use my privilege and power to be in solidarity with folks who have less power. And that can look many, I can get out of the way, I can listen, I can give resources, reparation. It can look all sorts of ways. I just wanna say that to people. And based on my identities where I'm less proximal to power, like being black in a white supremacy culture, folks who are white bodied and in the center of power, just based on race, for example, need to think about what it means um, to be in solidarity um, with black indigenous people of color, to understand the privilege that comes along with, for example, being white bodied or male bodied, for example, and using another, another identity. And so the point is we can't, um, well, we can try to bypass this and avoid it, and we will suffer more if we do that. And so I think social location is not only a tool to understand power, if we think about spiritual practice, it's a tool to better understand why we suffer and then what we want to do in response to that suffering. Um, I, I don't think and many spiritual practices talk about this. I think part of the human experience is suffering as far as I understand it. I do think though we have some um, say in how much we contribute to that suffering of people of the planet, right? How can we be good stewards of the planet? How can we care for one another? And that's not just like me thinking about caring about people. That is me as you spoke about compassion and, and, and compassion and action, right? It's me thinking about the actions I can take based on where I'm located and the privileges that I have to make change for the collective good at this time. So there's more, but that's a little bit about social location and our responsibility to one another because of our interconnectedness and interdependence. Michelle, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today and really appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such an honor to be have been here. So thank you.
Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. And I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.